welcome to season two of iFocus Podcast. As we celebrate Black History Month, we want to share with you an inspiring story about an incredible civil rights leader, Ambassador Andrew Young, former United States Ambassador, former Congressman, former Mayor, and an incredible leader with his own foundation, Andrew Young Foundation. I had the honor and the distinct pleasure of interviewing him. And today we're going to tell his story about his journey, his legacy, and the impact that he's made in Black America, in the United States, and throughout the world. I hope you'll enjoy season two with Ambassador Andy Young Jr. My name is Cynthia Blanford, executive producer of Our Focus Podcast in Atlanta, Georgia. Happy Black History Month to all of you out there. Ambassador Young, Your Excellency, you are nothing less than a living legend. And I want to personally thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to grant me this interview today. As the publisher and CFO of International Focus Magazine, I also want to thank you for attending the IF Magazine rollout at the Metropolitan Atlanta Chamber of Commerce on February the 9th, 2022, where you so respectfully endorsed the magazine and stated that the IF Magazine is right on time. You also thank the members of the Diplomatic Corps and others in the room for their commitment to strengthen trade and investment in the city of Atlanta. Ambassador, the first question, an icon of the civil rights movement, you worked as executive director for SCLC, the Southern Leadership Christian Leadership Council, Southern Christian Leadership Council, SCLC, where you became a top strategist and trusted friend of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and witnessed his assassination. Ambassador, tell us how this experience with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. changed your life forever. Thank you, sir. Well, Martin Luther King was truly a great man and a great friend, but the emphasis is on being a great man. And the way I define that is that he was single-minded in his purpose. And his purpose was to redeem the soul of America from the triple evils of racism, war, and poverty. And he had no illusions. He knew it was an extremely difficult task that we had been struggling with for 200 years or more. And I, I, I said in church Sunday, quoting him, that when we were sitting around one day and we were all in our early 30s, he said, you know, we have got to be clinically insane to think that we can change this nation with the limited resources and just, as he said, a bunch of sorry young black men. <laughs> have audacity to think that they can make America better. And then he said something very prophetic. We'll be lucky to live to 40. Wow. But if we make it to 40, we got to make it to 100 because this is a lifetime struggle. And as you know, he didn't quite make it to 40. He was killed shortly after his 39th birthday. And somehow I'm still around. But I can I can never forget that that it it is going to take 
more than my lifetime to get this country moving in the right direction. Now, that doesn't mean we're not moving there, but we take three steps forward and then one step back. We are making so much progress, and we are, that the more progress we make, the more complicated it gets. And that because as we change America, we're part of a world that's constantly being changed. My wife says I talk about this all the time, but I remind people that the invention of the printing press (laughs) put the planet in a cultural, economic, and political upheaval for more than a century in the 1500s. We're experiencing very much the same thing. And if the printing press could do that in the 15th century, how much more do you think cell phones and internet technology is creating and disturbing our growth patterns? This is not a simple world, and it never was. And just as we began to feel comfortable with it, Along comes something we didn't think about, and that is a virus. But you look back, and I think it was 1913, somewhere around there, we we had an influenza virus that set us back and may have contributed to the Depression in the 1920s. So we consider ourselves fortunate to have discovered a vaccine that helps us contain and control and and we've almost got the coronavirus. Well, at least we're managing it in just two years, though almost a million people have died from it. So these, these are extremely difficult times. And everybody wants the world and wants their own lives to be simple yeah. until they get simple. When your life gets simple, you get bored, you don't have anything to do. We are meant to be challenged. Just being with you, we had probably had 20 council generals there at your meeting, at least. Yes, sir. Some may have come later after I left, but just the fact that a city like Atlanta now has, I think, almost 70 councilors. Yes, sir. That's correct. It, mean, it means that Atlanta is no longer a quiet southern town. You go. <laughs> we, we have become what we wanted to become. We wanted to be a great international city, wanted to be the economic generator of the southern U.S. economy. We wanted to be an open door to Africa, Latin America, and the Caribbean, as well as now Europe and Asia. I've seen that happen in my lifetime. And I think maybe helped it happen. No doubt about it. You are a catalyst. I mean, the airport and the Olympics, the airport is the world's busiest. And I think in 2019, the last year before the the virus hit, we had 110 million passengers in a year and were the busiest in the world. But even through the, the crisis, We have remained the busiest in the world. There was a a short period when we thought Beijing was going to overtake us. True. 
but uh, we have come out on top so far. We held our own. Mm -hmm. We definitely did. Thank you so much. Just so prolific, your remarks, your statement, your role about helping Atlanta to become all that it could be in the international space with Hartsfield-Jackson Atlanta International Airport. Your role in the Olympics as a co-chairman, bringing the Olympics here has just been incredible. And now the 70-plus honorary consuls, consuls, generals, and trade offices are part of your legacy, will be remembered forever because of your vision to help make Atlanta the best that it could be. Having said that, Honorable, I'd like to move on to question number two. I know your time is short. So I'm moving on to some of the other political roles that you have played uh, in the city. In 1972, a predominantly white district in Georgia elected you as its representative to the United States Congress, making you the first Black man to serve in the state in Washington, D.C. since the Reconstruction era. Ambassador, share with me what particular legislation you were most focused on in 1972 that you are most proud of and why? The first thing I did for the district that I representative represented was to create the Chattahoochee National Park. We didn't have any national parks on the south in the southeast, and that was the first, I think. Yeah. And it has continued to grow and expand. And I'm I'm quite proud of that. Yep. Uh, but I also funded the Inter-American Development Bank. I was on the banking committee. We helped to create the International Inter-American Development Bank. And I went to uh, one of the meetings down there in Jamaica, <laughs> I think in 73. I sponsored funding for the African Development Bank. We created the African Development Bank. And of course, I was actively involved with the World Bank. Of course. Because I understood that the problems of the world are social and political, but essentially they all have economic solutions. If you can't get the money right, you can't get the people right. <laughs> That's so true. And, and then I, you know, I, I, I introduced a bill to create Peace Academy, yeah. because there were, well, we had a Naval Academy and an Army Academy and an Air Force Academy, a Coast Guard Academy. We had no Academy for Peace. The building, it passed and it's in existence, but I must confess, I've never even visited it because I, I left the Congress after four years and went to the UN. But one thing I do remember that helped me when I became mayor, we introduced an Urban Housing Act, mm-hmm. where when there were houses that were closed down and not being occupied, being used, the city bought them. And we put the addresses in a big fishbowl. <laughs> and anybody who wanted to, could reach into that fishbowl and pull out an address, and they had five days to check it out and decide whether they wanted it. If they wanted it, we gave them immediately $5,000, and I think they had 90 days to make it livable. Once they made it livable and, and, and lived in it for a little while, the neighborhood increased its value, and they were able to, 
the requirement was that they live in the house for at least five years. Mm-hmm. So they mortgage they they got a mortgage on it, and after fixing it up, they could get a mortgage for say maybe seventy five to hundred thousand dollars. And if you live in it five years, and then most of those people ended up selling them after five years for two hundred three hundred thousand dollars, sure, because they were they were in the central city, but that was that was planned gentrification. Now, we didn't plan for them to leave, but when you pay a dollar for a house, fix it up, live it in five years, and then somebody comes along and offers you $250,000 for it, most people are going to take it. That was the way we accommodated the large number of people. I mean, during the time I was, between the time I was congressman and the time I was mayor and the Olympics, we grew from less than a million people to almost 7 million people in the metropolitan area. And nobody thinks of us this way, but the metropolitan Atlanta area has an economy that's probably, well, it's about the size, it's about the same size economy as Norway. That's impressive. Norway is about $400 billion gross national product. Atlanta's economy was $398 billion. To put it in perspective, I, I think that makes Atlanta three or four times the size of South Africa economically. And it makes us running. I don't know what Nigeria's gross national product is right now, but when we were campaigning for the Olympics, mm-hmm. And I went around Africa. The way I met the African boats, I said, look, this is an African city. I know that's right. It's, it's, it's not my fault that your ancestors sold my ancestors into slavery. But we're not going to hold you responsible for that because we have gone through slavery and we have regenerated an economy through education and yeah. economics and and, and and just really hard work and vision. Seriously, yes. So we want you to vote for us as though we were on the African continent because it was your ancestors that moved us over here, <laughs> North America. And so that's one of the things that got us the Olympics. We got a solid block vote from all of the African and Caribbean states. So true. And Ambassador, that does speak to your leadership when you were in uh, Congress and appointed by former President Jimmy Carter in 1977. You were appointed uh, to the United States, United Nations, excuse me, to represent the United States at the United Nations. And in that role, you became a champion for human rights around the world, and particularly in Africa, where you spearheaded the administration's efforts to end apartheid. You will forever be remembered for your visionary work. Even though there were political and economic forces you had to navigate in order to help tear down apartheid. I wonder if there are any other measures today, as I have visited South Africa, Cape Town, Soweto, but Soweto in particular, I wonder as a part of your legacy, did you have any additional thoughts on how to bring prosperity, additional prosperity to Soweto? I know Soweto is near and dear to your heart. I know that you have great, you have great vision for that particular part of the province of the country. But I'm curious to know what other measures do you think 
in our lifetime we might be able to take to bring prosperity to Soweto? There's one institution that I that I really like in Johannesburg, and that is the University of Johannesburg. Okay. They graduate a thousand college graduates a year. They're the second largest graduation class of of, of black people on the planet. Wow. The, the largest is Georgia State here in Atlanta. I am a mother. That graduates <laughs> twelve hundred. Look at that. Undergraduates a year. Love it. And so I think you have to realize that. When I came through Atlanta on my way to Howard University, Atlanta was still, in many ways, being run by the Ku Klux Klan. Sure. And it was a very narrow-minded, racist city that I would not have wanted to be a part of. But when I came back to work with Martin Martin Luther King, it became my job to help develop it. Yeah. I think that's what we're going to have to see. I was one of that generation in the 60s that started coming back. Well, it really was as early as 54 that started coming back to the South and building things up. And it takes time. Atlanta was blessed with a network of four historically black colleges. Sure. Four or five. Uh-huh. And... And then we were able to integrate the university so that I think the state of Georgia now has almost a half a million college students. They're coming out of school fast enough so that their starting pay in most of these jobs is more than my pay was when I was mayor of Atlanta. (laughs) How about that? And the progress is educational, economic political, and they all go together. But one thing about Atlanta that that I think is not typical of most cities, even in America, is that we didn't build our city through taxpayer money. We built our city by going to Wall Street. And so the, the airport, which is the world's busiest, yes. didn't cost the taxpayers anything. And last year, it generated $66 billion dollars. Imagine. And that was a, that was an off year. I tell you, that was a year when we were fighting the virus. Yes, sir. But it produced also it generated over a million jobs. The thing that has made us successful that we partnered with rich people and went to Wall Street and we plugged into the global economy, and so that our airport didn't cost the taxpayers any money with the Olympics. We put on the Olympics and didn't use any government money. Montreal, after the 76 Olympics, I think is maybe still, they were $700 million in debt when they finished. We finished with a $100 million profit. Look at that. Wow. <laughs> Your leadership. <laughs> no, it was, it was just, well, I, I participated in it. I didn't want to do it as a government project. Of course. Because you have too many people controlling. We had 10 families that sort of created the vision and produced the ideas that generated the wealth that paid for it and had $100 million left over. 
impressive investor. So to, to that end, I wanted to ask you question four so we can keep you on your schedule. And you've already referenced the fact that in 1982, you were elected mayor of Atlanta. And I had the distinct honor and pleasure of working on your mayoral campaign from Ithaca, New York, but I, by way of Houston, Texas, relocated to Atlanta. And I had the greatest time of my life working on your on your campaign. You were credited, of course, uh, of helping to transform the city of Atlanta into an international metropolis, largely because of your influence in Atlanta and all the vision that you had around this work. Atlanta was chosen as the Centennial Olympic uh, Games for 1996, and you served as co-chairman. I witnessed also in 1996, the Olympic Games here in Atlanta, and I was excited and exhilarated to see people, young and old, black and white, people from all persuasions to participate in this historic occasion. Ambassador Young, as chairman, the Olympic Committee, at what point in time during the negotiations uh, did you believe that Atlanta had clinched the 1996 Olympic Games, and how do you believe sports help heal nations and bring peace? I decided we could win it before we even did. Okay. Because uh, (laughs) one of my staff brought me a list of the countries that had a vote. Okay. And I went down the list of countries. It was 85 countries. And I went down saying, where is it I know somebody or where I know somebody who knows somebody. (laughs) (laughs) And I counted 55 Ah. of 85. So I figured it doesn't matter who's running. If we can get 55 votes, we can win it. That's right. We ended up getting 53. Two of the people I counted were elderly, and one of them died. One one was the Coca-Cola bottler in Kenya. He certainly would have voted for us, but he was ill and passed before the Olympics. And the other was a swimmer from Italy. Hmm. And he and I had hit it off very good because I was a swimmer in college. Okay. And they were feeling that swimming didn't get help that it needed. And I knew, he promised me his vote, but he he was ill. And you had to fly all the way from, he would have had to fly from Italy all the way to Japan to vote. And he didn't make the vote. But we got all the votes for those two. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Amazing. So how do you believe sports help heal nations and bring peace? I know I've got a question coming up about your birthday, peace and reconciliation, but in your heart of hearts, uh, you were a swimmer. I was a swimmer. I know what that did for the swim team and for good health and all of that, but sports heal and help nations and bring peace. What is your reflection on that? I'm sure you remember the first time China, the U.S. didn't even recognize communist China until there was a ping-pong match, table tennis. (laughs) And then a match, a a hockey match with the Russians, Uh one of the Olympics, and America won. Mm, Wow. We beat the the Russians at that sport. But then they came back, and I think, I don't remember where it was, but they came back and they beat the U.S. in basketball, which is our sport. That was shameful. (laughs) No, and, and, but... It has promoted what I call a competitive equality. Competitive? Competitive equality. Equality, okay. And I say competitive equality because if you're sitting on your butt doing nothing, you're going to (laughs) lose. There you go. (laughs) And if you really want to get in the game, you've got to be in the game for life. Oh, I love it. 
I love it. Ooh, that's legendary. That's historic. Thank you for that. So, Ambassador, I have. Well, you know, let me take, let me brag now since you got me saying you were a swimmer too. <laughs> I, that when I turned 75. Yes, sir. I bet a lot of my friends that I could swim 75 lengths of the pool at the Y in one hour. And I did it as a fundraiser for the Y. And, I love the uh, YMCA. I used to swim there. You YMCA. And, and we raised about $25,000, $30,000. Because not only did I swim, I swam 50 laps. And my doctor was afraid that she made me stop and check my blood pressure. And my blood <laughs> pressure was doing all right. So I finished and still finished in under an hour. It's part of what it takes. Yes, I need spirit. What you learn in competition, especially something like swimming, the individual sports are in many ways more demanding because mm -hmm. it depends on you to get up and train. It depends on you to, to push yourself and to know how much to push yourself. Excellent. Impressive. I'm so delighted. I used to see you working out at the Walter and Andy Young YMCA on Campbellton Road way back in the day. My uh, pastor, J Gerald Durley, I know that that's the place where we all used to go and hang out and have a good time. And so thank you for your leadership uh, at, at the local level, too, with that wonderful YMCA on Campbellton Road. So let me just move on to one of our second to last question. And this goes to your foundation. Uh, the Andy J. Young Foundation was created to help make your vision for the planet a reality. You serve as chairman of the nonprofit organization where you have some incredible programs and projects that you are currently working on. I also want to take this time to acknowledge publicly for your assistance in helping to send 100,000 tablets of selenium to Liberia. We worked together. I worked with you as the Honorary Council for Liberia and the foundation to help send those uh, selenium tablets to our frontline workers during the COVID-19 pandemic. You had already done some things with uh, Alex Cummings in, in 2014 for the Ebola crisis, and you stood firm and said, what can I do to help Liberia, you know, through this health challenge? So Ambassador, did you want to highlight any particular program or project that you're currently working on that you're proud of that you'd like to share today? No, well, we, we've just been, we've been in the middle and we've been doing pretty well. And because we are an international city, for instance, when I was mayor, a group of young people came to me and said they wanted to have their own conference, no adults present. I arranged for them to have the World Congress Center. And they had about 5,000 students there and the adults sat in, but the adults couldn't talk. And, but out of that, came a concern of these students for hunger in Ethiopia. And actually it occurred because one of the boys had been in jail. And while he was in jail, he saw the Ethiopian famine on television. And he realized that he had messed up and he'd been wild and crazy. And yet he was in jail with a bed and eating three meals a day. How about that? Wow. He decided that if he ever got out, he was going to do something to help the people in Ethiopia. And so the students got together, and I think they raised $100,000. And they did the research to find out who was the best person to send it to. And they decided that UNICEF 
mm-hmm. as the most people on the ground in Ethiopia and were, were getting more food there. And so they sent the money to UNICEF. That, that's sort of what it takes to run a good city. You got to get everybody involved. And you gotta, you're, you're blessed if you have even wild, crazy young people who do <laughs> foolish things and then get locked up, but then come to their senses. And he, he's quite a significant businessman. Is that right? Yeah. What an amazing story. Amazing story. So when I write my notes up, I'll. In fact, one of the, the, the young man who was the chairman of that youth group when he was 15 is working with my son starting a financial technology bank called Greenwood. He asked me, why was I not an investor? And I said, well, you know, I was a mayor and the mayor didn't make but $50,000 a year. And I said, I said, that means in eight years, my salary was $400,000. And he said, damn. I said, well, what's the matter with that? He said, my wife made me turn down a gig where I would have made that in one weekend. Wow. And he he's one of the young rappers from this neighborhood who is now making enough, enough money to invest with my son and all the young folk in a, a technology bank uh, called Greenwood. They, they put together, for that, they put together a, a, a television network called Bounce. Sure. Well, of course, we've heard of Bounce. Which... which they ended up with 90 million families tied into it. Something to be very, very proud of. We can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We don't know what genius, what future leader, future president might even be in the jailhouse. We have to take our young people where they are. So thank you. Well, you know, my, my, my lesson started very early. Yes, sir. Because I got put out of school in third grade. <laughs> you were a troublemaker back then? But in order to survive, you had to be able to make a little noise. <laughs> Ambassador, amazing, amazing. So the last question I have for you, Ambassador, I was also happy to learn that you are getting ready to celebrate your 90th birthday. Congratulations. I was excited also to learn of all the activities relating to the four-day birthday celebration. I plan to be there to ce- to celebrate with you. And our If Magazine team in Atlanta will also be there to cover all stories related to your birthday bash for the magazine, and we will cover it and also put all of your events in the magazine. You will be on the front cover. Ambassador, please share with us what you hope to achieve with the various birthday events you are planning. So I know you have the March 9th, 90-minute Global Prayer for Peace. I know you have the March 10th minute, 90-minute Walk for Peace and Reconciliation. You have the March 11th, 90-day exhibit opening and book debut at Millennium Gate. And of course, the big event, the birthday event on March the 12th at the Georgia World Congress Center. So is there any particular, I mean, 90 is the big one. You turn 90, so you're able to tie 90 into all of these incredible activities. Would you want to share with us what you hope to achieve at each one of these events or just overall what impact you want to have? Well, to tell the truth, when I turned 75, I started this foundation. Okay. And I didn't have any money. I felt that I, I needed to think about what is it going to take to get me into heaven. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's right. <laughs> and I and I I turned to the twenty fifth chapter of Matthew. And Matthew, the Lord has the Lord asking us, "Did you feed the hungry? Did you clothe the naked? Did you heal the sick? Did you set at liberty those who were oppressed and proclaim the acceptable year of our Lord?" 
for me, that's a special challenge because I, I, it doesn't mean that you worked in a soup kitchen for a weekend on Thanksgiving. For me, it means what did you do knowing all that you know, having worked in the city and the state and the nation and internationally? I know that there's 7 billion people, but that in another 50 years, there'll be 9 billion people. Imagine. We're having trouble feeding 7 billion people now. How are we going to feed 9 billion people when the planet's getting hotter, the water's getting scarcer, and it's getting more and more difficult because we have screwed up the environment of this planet? What we're doing is really kind of, it's more research and thinking about ideas. We're running small demonstrations. I was on the phone just before I started talking with you about a, a young woman out in Oklahoma who's working with minority children across the South in farming. We're going we're gonna to have to find some way that they can get into f farming and not be an agribusiness. An agribusiness, you know, may have thousands of acres of land and it makes millions of dollars, but we're going to have to have our food supply closer to the cities, closer to the neighborhoods. We're doing things, experiments with aquaponics, where instead of growing food in the ground, you grow it in water. And instead of adding fertilizer, you create a fish tank and the waste from the fish floods through the water in the growing area, you create a complete cycle. The advantage of that is we can grow a head of lettuce in six weeks instead of six months. We're, we're doing things like that, that we intend to export to Africa. But now when I say export, I'm going to export the ideas. There are people like my friend Obasanjo uh -huh. in Nigeria. He's got a huge farm. He doesn't need any money. He needs ideas. He's got money. Dangote in Nigeria. He Thank was you. saying that he was going to build, he was going to produce a, a billion dollars worth of rice. Well, I would challenge him and say, why not a hundred million dollars in the vegetables? I mean, that and and get more brain food than muscle food. <laughs> and I have friends in Kenya. I have friends in Ivory Coast that are looking for, and then we already, we have another famine in the total horn of Africa now. Sure. It's really, uh, it's really starving. So getting some of these ideas working and funding and exporting them. And we're not trying to export the food, we're trying to export the ideas. There are lots of things that have to be done. Healing the sick. Well, you mentioned that we sent selenium to Liberia, but we also we also found a black exporter that was able to find they're not oxygen generators, but this the word is similar to generator. We were able to buy twenty five of them. And we bought them in China and had them shipped across the border to India. And each one of them, each one of these things, 25 things that we bought can handle 50 people in a hospital. But the thing is, 
because of our international connections, we got it done in a week. Amazing. Really impressive. Uh, and, but it was, these are kind of accidents that I, I, I say when there's an, an accident is God's way of remaining anonymous. Look at that. <laughs> that we were led, we were led to this young man in Thomasville, Georgia. Now that's where my first church was. Sure, I remember. In 1954. But it was a little country town then. But to think that there was a black man able to export and import from China in Thomasville was in itself a miracle. But then my president of my foundation is from India, yeah, and it was his it was his classmate in engineering school who went back to school and became a doctor, and was running hospitals in the Bihar area of India, and that's on the far east coast. When most of the things going into India were going into Delhi on the west coast, but we were able to go through Thomasville mm. to China to Bihar in a week's time. And he sent us pictures of them unpacking these oxygen generators. And generation is not the word, but I forget what it is. No doubt. Uh, (laughs) But they they pull oxygen out of the air and supply it to the... And each one can handle 50 patients. So he was distributing them to hospitals in India within two weeks of talking to us about getting it done. So it, it lets you know all things are possible. All things are possible. And if you, if you only believe. If you only believe. I love it. If we are getting ready to wrap up this interview. What I'd like to ask of you right now, uh, Ambassador, certainly I want to say a very special thanks to this time that you've given us. But is there anything else you would like to share with me at this time? And then we'll close out with some official uh, thank yous. I hope particularly the Council of Four and the people who read this magazine will realize that I came here knowing nothing, had no money. In fact, my first job in Atlanta was $6,000 a year. And yet, over time, being consistent, I'm not bragging, but it's it's either courageous or stupid. Or you don't know that you don't care about the difference. Because, see, people thought when I told, when I I went to the business community when I was running there, and I said, Atlanta, if it's going to make it, it's got to become a truly international city. And I saw the president of the bank lean over and talk to my friend. And he said, and then they both left. So when I got out of the meeting, I said, Charlie, you got to tell me what he said. And he said, he said, you don't want to know. I said, yes, I do. And then he said, well, he said, Charlie, where in the hell did you get that crazy nuts? I'm just talking about you. (laughs) But I said, I said he used an N word, but it probably wasn't nut. (laughs) You're right. (laughs) See, but but that man became one of my best friends. Look at that. (laughs) Because I took him with me to to Japan. Okay. And we interviewed over a hundred Japanese businesses in about three days. My God. And we got about five of them to come back to Georgia. That's amazing. (laughs) 
And so, but he had never been to Japan. When I went to Congress, the first year I was in Congress, they selected me as a, a representative to go to meet with the Japanese diet. And I spent a, almost 10 days in Japan getting to know people, understanding. And I understood that they were producing more stuff than they needed in Japan. Mm-hmm. So if they wanted to survive, they had to expand their markets. And the best place to expand the market was Atlanta because you could get to 80% of the U.S. market in two hours from Atlanta because of our airport. Well, he didn't know any of that. So when I took him with me and he saw how the world operates, he became one of my best friends and supporters. Look at that. Amazing. That's such a testament to you, your vision. And I'm just so proud to know you and to have been a part of your journey here in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm a native from Elmira, Ithaca, Houston, and Atlanta, but I claim Atlanta as my home because of people like you, Ambassador. So as we get ready to close, on behalf of IF Magazine, International Focus Magazine, Atlanta, Georgia, I want to say a very heartfelt thanks and appreciation to you for taking the time out of your very busy schedule today. We will be at your 90th birthday party. We'll be covering all things Ambassador Young for your birthday tribute that will begin, I believe, is that on March the 9th, all the way through March the 12th. Uh, Ambassador, thank you so much. Hope you enjoyed my interview with Ambassador Andrew Young. Be sure to follow us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, everywhere you like to listen to your favorite podcasts. Be sure to tune in to iFocus Podcast every other week where we talk travel, trade, tourism, and international business. My name is Cynthia Blandford here in Atlanta, Georgia, iFocus Podcast, executive producer. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to seeing you again in the near future. Have a great day.